Thank you. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And today we finish out the series on the Lord's Prayer. We've called it Pray Like Jesus Says. And um, the reason we call it that is because it is kind of the model. I mean, he said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, he said, when you pray, pray in this way, as we'll see in just a moment. And so just by his wording, it, it shows us that's that's his model prayer for us. It wasn't necessarily the same prayer he would pray verbatim. There are parts of that where he would not have prayed, parts of it where he would have, specifically the part where he says, forgive us our sins. He would not have prayed that because the only sins he bore were those of us, right? It wasn't that he had sinned, it was that we had, and he willingly bore that for us. But Jesus, being sinless, would have never prayed for forgiveness. But much of that prayer, most of it, uh, obviously, all of it really he gives us as tracks to run on it's a model prayer for us as followers of Jesus and it's been to me it's been really really beneficial for me going through this series I've grown a lot through this I hope you have as well but just in preparing obviously I've been familiar with the Lord's Prayer for a long time have prayed through it as well and I shared a story uh, two months ago that when I played high school basketball we'd pray this prayer before we'd run out on the floor every single game and uh, I think our hearts could not have been more disengaged probably than then and sadly for a lot of Christians when we pray this prayer it's exactly that. Our minds are a million miles away. We're just praying it because we're so familiar with it. Hopefully what this series has done is helped us to see that there is a lot packed into this one specific prayer. And, uh, and that if we're willing to pray it with our hearts engaged, man, oh man, it hits some of the absolute high points of our fellowship and our relationship with God. So one thing I mentioned early on, hopefully for some of you, you've begun to do this, is you may want to just pray through this kind of in your own words as well. And in your prayer time, obviously you're going to pray a lot of prayers that are not the Lord's prayer, but when you pray this, use it as a model to help guide your prayer time just between you and the Lord. Right, Not just memorizing it and praying through it, but also just praying it and expanding it a little bit. That when you pray, our Father, you know, thank God for who he is. Thank you for that role that he fills in your life. That even if you didn't have a father who was worthy of following, right? Maybe your dad was not the best role model for you, but God is. Thank him for that, right? And then as you move through that prayer, just expand it. Build it in your own words. And let this be a, a, a track for you in your prayer life as well to run on specifically. So there's nothing magical about the Lord's Prayer it's not a mantra. If we feel like we're closer to God because we've memorized this and we pray it every single day, then that would almost border on idolatry, really. You know, it, it's not the prayer. There's no special potion in this prayer when we pray it. It's not like God unleashes extra blessings. That, that's one of the dangers, I think, in, 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 uh, in, in our Christian faith nowadays with so much social media, with so much um, material that's being, it's being put out there. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can try to condense the Christian life into a mantra or into something that's mystical or magical, and it doesn't operate that way. I remember years ago that this book came out called The Prayer of Jabez. Many of you may have, may have read that book, and, and it was almost like it was pitched as this like, you know, shortcut <laughs> to God's blessing. You know, pray this prayer every day, the prayer of Jabez. Yes, it's in the Bible. Yes, it's biblical. Uh, yes, there was a historical context, but it's not some magical potion, right, that unlocks God's blessings in our lives. And the Lord's Prayer sometimes wrongly can be viewed that way. This is not something to be taken as a ritual. This is to be relational and use it that way. Keep it that way. When you pray, let this be a model for you. Let the Lord's Prayer be a model for you, but remember that it is all about relationship. It is all that God wants to hear your heart. He already knows it. He already knows what's in your mind. He already knows your challenges. He always know, already knows your level of trust, but man, he wants to hear from 
you and what a blessing it is. Man, don't overlook this. What a, bl a blessing and a privilege it is, really, that we even get to come to God in the first place. That the God who created all this, outside these walls today, is a God who hung that sun up in the sky and he rolled those clouds in on time according to his timetable. And that tide down at Tybee, 15 miles from here, is going to roll in and it's going to ebb and flow at just the right time in just the right way. Why? Because there's a God who created it, put it in place, sustained it, and one day is going to come back and prove that he reigns over all of it in a way that is absolutely unmistakable. It's that God that you and I get to say, our Father, and he hears us. I mean, that is just absolutely mind-blowing. The sad thing is, is that we get so familiar with it, we forget how mind-blowing that really is, right? That the God who accomplishes everything, he knows what's going on north of here. He knows what's going on south of here, east of here, west of here. He is in control of all of it, and he welcomes you, he calls you to pray. <laughs> and to come to him, how amazing that is. And then on top of that, he even gives us a little model to make, it, <laughs> to make it a little bit easier. It's just absolutely amazing. So Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 11 also includes portion of the Lord's Prayer. This is what we've been working through. And uh, today we conclude it and we finish it. Hopefully you won't just finish it and move on. Hopefully for each of us, we've been changed a little bit. And uh, we've been grown a little deeper in our walks with Christ. And for those who don't know Jesus, hopefully you've understood a little bit about what his heart is all about just through this prayer. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. I'm going to read all the way through it again. If you didn't know this prayer before, and you've come for all eight or nine weeks of this series, then uh, you, you know it now because we read it every single Sunday. So let's do it one final time in this series. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. So Jesus is speaking, and he says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this prayer, whether you realized it or not, largely focuses and it immediately focuses on God, not us. If, if you even look through, let's go back to the very first slide, if we could, in this, uh, in this passage, back to verse 9. So he's talking about how God is our Father. There's a relational component there. He's not Father for everybody. He's only Father to those who are his children. How do we become his children? Through a relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So it's when we lay down our sin that separates us, and when we place our faith in Christ, that's how we get to know God as our Father. So he says, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, he reminds us that he is over all. He sits above, figuratively speaking. He sits over his creation. He is a God who is both um, transcendent, he's above and beyond what we can even imagine, but he's also imminent. He is here and he is near. He says, hallowed be your name. In other words, if a God like that truly exists, and he does, and he's revealed himself to us in scripture, that the only right response for us is to make his name holy. Because that's exactly who he is. So we pray, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. It's about your kingdom. Your will be done. It's about your will on earth as it is in heaven. And then the prayer shifts to our needs. It starts with God. It's primarily about God. But then it shifts to our needs where we're making petition to God. And even there, it's still about God, right? Even there, when we come to him with our needs, it's still focused on him, not us. He says, pray this, give us this day our daily bread, and, and not just in a physical sense, but when we looked at this part of the verse, what we talked about was all of us have hungers in our lives. All of us hunger for certain things, and a lot of times we go to the wrong places to get those hungers filled, to get that thirst quenched. 
But the things that we truly hunger for that are of God, only he can fill, only he can ultimately provide. And so he prays, give us this day our daily bread. Let's move on to the next slide. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is the greatest need of the human heart, of the human life, is the need for forgiveness. You can be a great person and pray to be better, but that goodness isn't going to get you to heaven. You can pray for more wisdom and more intellect and a greater understanding of God's word, but that wisdom and that intellect and that knowledge isn't going to get you to heaven. What we need is forgiveness of our sins in the, in the eyes of a God who is holy, whose name is to be hallowed. And so he says, pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We have an opportunity to be able to put him on display and to demonstrate what forgiveness looks like when we forgive others. I listened to Jeremy's message um, two, from two weeks ago, and he did an awesome job. He didn't deal just with this verse, but he talked a little bit more, expanding what it means to forgive others. Did a phenomenal, phenomenal job in that message. If you haven't listened to it, go back to our website. Listen to the one by Jeremy Young, who's like a grandson to me, and you're going to love that message. And uh, I need to send him, by the way, an Amazon card. I, I told him that. I texted him, for those of you that remember that part of the message. Uh, and then he, he says in verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We talked about that last Sunday and how uh, uh, every single one of us need to trust our steering, not our brakes. We need to make sure that we go the right direction because this world is a fallen world and you face three enemies, Satan, the world itself that lives opposed to God and your flesh. And we can't do business with that and, and expect to come out victorious the way we've sung about today. We need help with that. And uh, we need the Holy Spirit to live his life through us. And so every day our prayer should be some form of to, for the Lord to lead us in the right ways. Not to put us in a situation or allow a circumstance where we're going to be tempted to abandon him. But that if we get in those areas of temptation or maybe even sin, that he would reach down and glory, or, or uh, would, would ultimately deliver us to his glory. And so we end today with the very end of this Lord's Prayer specifically with verse 13. And it's the second half of verse 13 that simply says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We have a tendency, at least I do, maybe not you, you may be further along in this journey than I am, but I think for most of us we have a tendency to make life about us, don't we? Right? Even in church, I mean, even, even here, even when we come to God and we pray or when we come to his word, we come to it sometimes with a mindset that life is about us, that, that it's about our comfort. And if we're not comfortable, then sometimes we get a little bit put off by God. We get angry with God. We get mad. We say, I'm not going to that church. I tried Christianity one time, sometimes you'll hear, and it didn't work, which means even though the Bible says that Christianity doesn't build a bubble around us and keep us from suffering, even though Scripture tells us very clearly that we're going to go through times of suffering, the mentality for many is that Christianity is some form of a self-help thing, that if it doesn't work for us, meaning if it doesn't scratch every itch and give us every desire and, and, and bring our comfort to a greater level, then it didn't work. And the reason for that mentality is because we tend to look at life through lenses that are focused on us and not on him. And it becomes about our comfort, comfort and our advancement and our hopes and our dreams and our career and our money and it's our free time. And we, we gravitate away from this mindset that it's not to be focused on us at all. Life is not about us. Life is about him. It is his world. These are his lives. It, it says, in, Paul says in Corinthians that you were not even your own if you're a follower of Jesus. You're bought with a price. 
Right? Even your life doesn't belong to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been bought ultimately by a price. And what, what we see here at the very end of this particular Lord's Prayer is that it makes this statement that pulls everything together and it ties all of life together with a nice little bow on top with this simple phrase that says that his is the kingdom and his is the power and his is the glory forever. Amen. And it's a fitting conclusion, isn't it, to the Lord's Prayer. It's a fitting conclusion. What you may or may not have realized, however, is that it is an interesting conclusion in some ways. And some of you may have already realized that because if you're using a new international version translation, if you have a a copy of the NIV there in front of you, then what you've realized is, wait a minute, this part of the prayer isn't in my Bible. Others of you may have found that that part of the prayer is in brackets. So, so why is that? I mean, in some, some translations it's not there. In other translations it's in brackets. What, what is up with this, particular transla- with this particular part of the Lord's Prayer? You can see in the translation that I use, the New American Standard Bible, this is exactly the way it reads. If you've got a New American Standard translation, then then this is what you've got as well. You've got brackets around that part of the verse. What's up with that? Well, here, I want to talk for a moment about what's up with the brackets, <laughs> all right? And this may get a little bit technical to some degree. I'm going to try not to make it too technical, um, but there's a point to it. And then at the same time, I want to come back to this verse and talk about what it actually says. So, so how did we get our Bible in the first place? How did we even come to where you hold the copy of what you call God's Word? Some of you may have no problem calling it that. I certainly don't have an issue calling it that. Others of you, maybe, if you're here or you're online, maybe you're brand new to even checking out what Christianity is all about. And maybe for you, for whatever reason, you still haven't quite come to the conclusion of whether or not this is truly God's word to you. So what, so, so, so what, what is the right perspective as it relates to this document called the Bible, this collection of 66 books that comes together to form one book, that we call the Bible. Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that Scripture testifies to itself as being God's Word. Take a look at what it says in the book of 2 Peter. You can flip over there with me if you want, just so you don't forget how to use your actual Bibles, all right? It's all on the overhead for you. Make it easy. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and verse 21. This is Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus, who's written this book, and he says... In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. All right, focus on this last part. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So when you think of Scripture, and Scripture uses similar wording elsewhere where it says that God's Word is God-breathed. That's what Paul says that it's God-breathed. What we look at as Scripture is that God's Word is inspired by God. It was written by God. No other book in existence is the same as this book. It is written by God. The Holy Spirit moved, just like 2 Peter says, moved through the lives, through the pens of men, right, to write this book that we call Scripture, that we call God's Word. Some will say, well, the reason I don't trust the Bible is because it was only written by men, right? You may have heard that. Any of you ever heard that particular statement that's been made, right? Some of you, 
I have a hard time trusting them. If you talk enough with some of, uh, some of those out who don't have a, a, a Christian worldview, you may hear that particular complaint that I, I don't really trust the Bible. How can it be God's word? It was only written by men. Part of that is true. It was written by men. Right? The key word is only. It wasn't only written by men. Interestingly, those who'd make that claim that I don't trust the Bible because it was written by men probably earned college degrees and advanced degrees and maybe even PhDs as well, studying textbooks that were written by men. And that didn't seem to be an issue back there in those days, but that's a separate argument. The Bible was written, yes, by men, but the kicker here is that it was written by God through men. That's the internal testimony of Scripture. It is a book unlike any other. And through the years, it has stood the tests of time to show itself as being God's word without error that is worthy of us building our lives upon. That where Jesus spoke in this book, Jesus really spoke. Yes, written by men, but more so written by God through men. The second thing we need to kind of realize when we talk about Scripture is that Scripture is also reliable. When we say that the Bible is without error, what we're meaning is is that when it was written in its original languages, it was written without error. In the New Testament, we won't talk about the Old Testament today as much, but much of the same stuff I'm about to say applies to the Old Testament as well. But we're in the New Testament, so let's talk about the New Testament for just a moment. In, in the New Testament, we, we have an English translation because people wrote the New Testament, largely Paul, but wrote the New Testament in the original Greek language. That was the language in which they largely wrote when they wrote the New Testament. Deepak Chopra, I saw a video a few, uh, a couple of weeks or so ago, a big new age guru, Deepak Chopra, many of you are familiar with him perhaps, if you watch Oprah, you're familiar with Deepak Chopra, then uh, he's this new age guy who would be in many ways anti-scripture, anti-Jesus as we know Christ, and uh, he made this comment that you can't trust the Bible, I actually saw this video, He, he said you can't trust the Bible because there were 17 iterations. There were 17 generations from the original to, he used the King James as, a, as his example, to the King James. 17 iterations, 17 generations. And I'm so thankful that the person who was debating with him pointed out that no, there are not 17 generations from the original manuscripts to the King James. There is one generation. It went from Greek to English. <laughs> That makes a big difference because when you're reading a work that was written in antiquity, which the Bible was at the earliest 2,000 years ago, you want to be sure that what we're reading now can be supported by manuscripts, by textual evidence that links it in a way that affirms its reliability. And when we, don't get lost here, I'm not going to camp here for very long, but I just want to make a point because for some of you this is going to be interesting because you've been wondering the same thing, how can I trust the Bible? Whenever we look at Scripture, we deal with its reliability based on manuscript evidence. In other words, we didn't get this out of thin air, it was written, right? It was written by people. Again, as Peter said, God moved and people wrote And they wrote on manuscripts, and they wrote very early on in the New Testament. The earliest manuscript fragment that we have that traces back to the New Testament is as far as 30 years from the date that those events would have happened. And that is incredibly, incredibly reliable. There are more manuscripts for us to be able to, to, uh, to, to match against one another 
over close to 5,800 manuscripts in the New Testament that are in existence today that we can check. And the earliest, you've got early manuscripts, you've got late manuscripts, you've got a variety of manuscripts, you put them all together, and we have what is called God's Word. And they incredibly testify one to the other. No other work in antiquity has that kind of manuscript evidence. Again, almost 5,800 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts are in existence from 2,000 years ago and then upwards of uh, the, the, during those early centuries following the life and ministry of Jesus. Most works of antiquity have less than 12 manuscripts that you can look back. I mean, who knows what Shakespeare said? He wrote in 1600s. Who really knows what Homer or any of those others you studied in high school really wrote? You don't have that kind of manuscript evidence. Homer's Iliad is the closest. has like 180 manuscripts in existence that you can match one against another. New Testament, almost 5,800. Say, Brooks, why are we going this direction? Why why does this matter? It it matters because of the way the Lord's Prayer ends. And, And it matters because for some it raises a question. That when we look at the end of the Lord's Prayer, there is, at this very ending, when he says that yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory forever, amen. Again, the New International Version, the English Standard Version does not even include that. The King James Version does. The New American Standard puts it in brackets. Why is that? Here's why. Because some of the earlier manuscripts that we have of the New Testament documents. We don't have any originals. All we have are manuscripts. Some of the earlier manuscripts do not include that phrase. Let's go back to verse 13 again. Some of the earlier manuscripts do not include it. 98.5% of those almost 5,800 manuscripts include this part of the Lord's Prayer. But the earlier ones, which are usually given a little more weight, do not include this portion of the prayer. And so, whenever we have English translations, such as the New International Version, or the English Standard Version, or the King James Version, or the New American Standard Version, or whichever other one, they sort of make those translation committees decide for themselves which, whether they're going to use this part of the Lord's Prayer or whether they're not. Now, here's the thing. Whenever you see instances such as this, they're called textual variants, None of these textual variants, when, when scribes sat down to write the manuscripts and to copy those manuscripts out, and you've got almost 5,800 of those, and all of the early church fathers who, who operated in the 2nd century and 3rd century after Jesus, all of those church fathers put together, spoke, every verse in the New Testament is quoted by those early church fathers except for 11, right? When you put all that together, what you find is a Bible that is trustworthy, that's reliable, God-inspired, that God wrote, that is endured endured time and generations of people and when you get to those instances where there is a textual variant was it really this number was it that number one translation says it was this number in some old testament passage another translation says it was that number none of those variants number one they're not as many as you think number two none of them affect any type of doctrine at all and this would be a perfect example most scholars who were conservative in their theology, right, would agree that more than likely this part of the Lord's Prayer was not in the original manuscript whenever it would have been written by Matthew. Who knows? No way of knowing. But here's the thing. Even if it wasn't, 
this verse is incredibly consistent with everything about who God is. Not in one small way does it run inconsistent to anything else the Bible says about who God is. And any time, and here's why this is important, because next time you're standing at the water cooler and you're there with one of your coworkers and they say, hey, what'd you do this week? And you say, I went to church. And they say, why do you go to church? You know, it's all, why do you even read the Bible? You know, it was only written by men. And by the way, it's full of errors. Next time you hear that, just understand, one, if you were to ask them to please show you one, they probably can't. But number two, if they take you to something that we would say that the King James says something a little bit different than the NIV, it's called a textual variant, and it does not affect any form of doctrine of any major significance whatsoever. And this is the perfect example. That's why all this is important. I don't want to bore you with a lot of details and make you feel like you're back in seminary. I don't want to do that, but this is important because this is kind of where the rubber hits the road for some people. And so we look at this end of the Lord's Prayer, and whether Matthew had it there or not, who knows, we can ask him when we get to heaven. <laughs> but man, it sure does fit, doesn't it? And it sure fits in a prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying it. If we want to pray it for every prayer, Lord, you bless this meal. Thank you for providing this food. You've met my daily needs. Oh, and by the way, Lord, yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. Amen. Fits. When you look at this ending of the Lord's Prayer, two things I want to point out real quickly. Number one, that this part of the prayer shows God's preeminence, doesn't it? It shows that he is over all, that he is supreme, he is first, he is highest, he is most. It's so fitting for this prayer to end. Those who feel like Matthew did not include it feel like it was added to some, in some point later on because it was what's called a doxology. It was a fitting word of praise that is consistent elsewhere in Scripture. Whenever it's prayed that his is the kingdom, for example, Jesus already dealt with that in the prayer in verse 10. That, that's part of our prayer, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. When he talks about God's kingdom, what he's talking about is God's reign and God's rule. And whenever we pray at the end of that prayer, or any time in our prayer time, when we pray, God, yours is the kingdom, what we're praying is, is God, your rule extends over all of this earth. Lord, you are God. You are over all. You are sovereign. You are, you are the one who, who stands over and, and not only has created but also sustains everything that's in existence, my life included. Lord, this kingdom is yours. It's not about our kingdom as people. Listen, it's not even about our kingdoms as churches. One of the issues today in Christianity is you got all these pockets of churches that are trying to build our own individual kingdoms, whereas what, what happens best is when we all come together unified and as believers we walk in a way that puts Christ on display and we work in cooperation with one another to lead a lost world to the light of Jesus Christ. Right, because it's not about our kingdom. It's not about a First Baptist kingdom or a First Methodist kingdom or a Second Presbyterian kingdom. It's not about all that. It's about His kingdom. That's what it's about. And at the end of this prayer, it says for us to pray and to be, keep in mind that it's about his kingdom, not our own. When Jesus had conversation with Nicodemus in John <clears throat> chapter 3, what does he say to him? He says, Nicodemus, no one is going to see the kingdom of God unless he is first what? Born again. You don't hear that phrase so much anymore. It kind of passed, it, it got a lot of baggage lopped onto the top of it from the 70s. But this is exactly what Jesus says. And it's a great analogy that you're not going to see the reign of God in your life. You're not going to see the kingdom of God when it comes in all of its glory eventually <clears throat> in the end times unless you were first born again. Meaning, unless you come to the place where you die to yourself and your sin and you lay it down and it's as though you get a brand new life all over again through Jesus. 
It's like being born all over again. Those of you who know Christ know what that feels like. It was a perfect analogy for Jesus to use. And he says it's required for us to know Christ before we can ultimately see his kingdom. So my question to you, when we come to this part of the prayer, the question we have to ask ourselves is whose kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom are you specifically living for? Are you trying to build your kingdom? You're trying to build your career and your little nest egg and your little set of accomplishments? Are you, are you trying to build your kingdom? Is life about your kingdom and what you can do? Or is it about extending his? Because his is the kingdom. Jesus didn't say pray this way, pray ours. You know, Lord, because we are co-heirs with Christ. No, he said yours. We still have our place. Thankfully, it's in that kingdom, but it still belongs to him. Jesus said to pray yours is the kingdom. And also we see here in Matthew, yours is the power. Sometimes we think the power, if you ask this world at least, the belief is that power flows out of our wealth or out of our position or out of our authority, something along those lines. Look at what it says here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can can read on the screen behind me, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Power doesn't come from any of the things that this world thinks it does. Deuteronomy chapter 8, in the fifth book of the Bible, God just kind of puts it to rest. A lengthy passage of Scripture. But pick up with me, Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. He says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and you're satisfied and you've built good houses and you've lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart is going to become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. And in the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, my power And the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Listen, when it comes to power, all power belongs to God. Jesus demonstrated, embodied that power. God has all power to do the impossible. Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, when, G, when uh, the angel came to Mary, she understood that God could do the impossible. Why? Because he holds all power. Jesus was raised by the power of God one day. You as a believer are going to be raised by the power of God one day. Jesus is going to return in power. And when he ascended the first time back to heaven, he said to us that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will fill us with what? With all power. It is all his. And any power we have (laughs) comes from him because his is the kingdom and his is the power. And then as Matthew reminds us at the close, his is, is the glory. He holds it all. Isaiah 42 says he doesn't share it with another. Jesus reflected it, Hebrews chapter 1. Believers have the opportunity to reflect it. 2 Corinthians tells us Moses cried out to see it in Exodus chapter 33. Jesus was raised from the dead in his glory. We're called to live in his glory, 1 Corinthians 10. Why? Because all glory belongs to him. The question is, whose glory are you living for? For yours 
are for his. When we see this close to the Lord's Prayer, it teaches us and it reminds us that God ultimately is preeminent. But at the very same time, at the very close of this prayer, and I finish with this, this part of the prayer also shows us what our life's aim should be. And when you think about, hey, what's, what's my purpose on this earth? The end of this prayer kind of nails it. It really does. Because if, it's, if, if his is the kingdom and his is the power and his is the glory, then the purpose of my life is to live to extend his kingdom. It's to walk in his power <laughs> and it's to reflect his glory. And that, that's sort of my marching orders, right? I mean, I, I know that's general. There's a lot of ways to unpack that. But at the very end of the day, there, there's your three marching orders. Live in a way that advances his kingdom. You are an ambassador of Christ here on this earth, called to live on mission. Not in heaven yet. There's a reason for that. He leaves us here in a dark, cold world that is not like him so that we can extend his kingdom. That's the purpose of churches, is to extend his kingdom. Churches consisting of individual believers called to extend his kingdom. We're also called ultimately to walk in his power, that you don't have the power to live above sin. You and I don't have the power to overcome strongholds and addictions. You and I don't have the power to live life the way he wants us to. We have to live it in the power of the Holy Spirit, that as we yield to the Holy Spirit, he demonstrates his power through us. We are called ultimately to walk in his power and then to live for his glory. I mean, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all to what? To the glory of God, Paul says. We live to his glory. When you clock, that, uh, when you clock in, not tomorrow because hopefully maybe you're off, but when you clock in on Tuesday, right, after a long holiday weekend, you clock into your job, whether it's making bread or selling bread or whether it's uh, running a grocery store, whatever it may be along the spectrum, whatever you do, you punch that clock and you live to the glory of God. And when you raise your kids and when you go on vacation and when nobody's looking or when everybody's looking, you live to the glory of God. That's the marching orders. And the end of this prayer reminds us that his is the kingdom, his is the power, his is the glory. He is preeminent over all. And he calls us to come to him and to talk to him in prayer. But at the very same time, our marching orders, our life's aim is very clear at the very end. Whether Matthew truly said it originally, beginning or not, it is so consistent, it, it fits with the Bible, <laughs> that it really is his kingdom and his power and his glory. So extend that kingdom, advance it, share the gospel, live on mission, walk in his power, and live to his glory. And if you don't know him, and if you've never come to a relationship with a God who says, just come and pray to me, come and talk to me. Come to me and trust me, and I'll provide your needs, and I'll forgive your sin, and I'll bless your life. If you don't know that, God, the only way it comes is when you have freedom, not because you try harder or do better, but because you lay down your sin and invited Christ to forgive and to take over. And you know what? Right where you sit today, right where you sit, if you pray genuinely, Lord, forgive me a sinner. Jesus, forgive and take over my life. He'll do it. He'll do it. He'll do it. I promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's reliable. Lord, you have preserved it through the centuries, God. Lord, in miraculous fashion, you gave it. Lord, there's not one person. There have been many through history that have brought questions against your word. None that have been proven substantial. Lord, anyone can question. It's much harder to prove and Lord, your word has proven itself as nothing less than your word to us. Reliable, without error, 
God, we thank you that as we build our lives on it, like Jesus said, it's like building our lives on the rock, on the strong foundation, like Adam spoke about on Friday in his, in his video. Lord, your word doesn't lead us astray. And one of the biggest things it tells us is how to have a relationship with you in the first place. God, that it comes when we lay down our sin and we invite Jesus to forgive us and to take over our lives, to save us as our Lord and Savior. Lord, many in this place have made that decision, God. Help us, help us to have conversation with you the way Jesus tells us to. Lord, help us to live a life that extends your kingdom and that walks in your power and that ultimately lives to your glory. Help us to do that well as we surrender ourselves to your spirit to live his life through us. And God, thank you. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your freedom as we celebrate this weekend. As a nation, thank you that for us individually, we have freedom in the best way of all. Freedom from sin. Freedom from guilt condemnation because of Christ in us. Lord, help us to live out and to proclaim that message faithfully. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.